You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. What is about this morning? I got to get the, I got the coffee and the water this morning. I don't know. Didn't sleep as well last night. Um, I want to start off this morning, uh, kind of like a little thought exercise with a question. Um, even, even actually want you to kind of in a in a contemplative state. I actually want you to uh, some of you to resist this, but just just to close your eyes for a moment as I kind of reflect on this question. I'll close my eyes too. Don't worry. I want you to think about this question and picture it in your mind. This question, how does God view you right now? How does God view you right now? I, I don't mean what's the Sunday school answer you're supposed to say. Uh, what do you really believe? What do you really feel about how God views you right now? If you came to him right now, what's, what's his disposition towards you? What's his feeling towards you? Is he too busy to notice, too busy with other things? Is he warm and kind towards you? Are you picturing a, a disappointed dad, maybe with his arms crossed? Is he unimpressed? Are his eyes filled with excitement to greet you, or, or maybe just disinterest? What words come to your mind? What picture comes to your mind? And I want you to hold on to that for a moment. You can open your eyes if you want. This passage is, is concerned this morning. Hold on to that thought. This passage is concerned with, with where you and I turn to in our time of need. At times of trial, times of weakness, times of anxiety, times of stress and failings, where do we go? Think about it. Where do you turn? You're distressed and pressed in anxiety and pain. Uh, for me, oftentimes my, my gut response is, is to just turn to a screen to distract, right? If I can just get my thought away from the, the anxiety, the stress. Um, do you open up your bank account to find some comfort, some security? Do you pour a drink? Do you text someone, uh, someone else, someone close to you? Could be a bevy of things. But the invitation for us this morning is, and really for each, each and every one of us, is that there is really only one true, good, satisfying place to go in our need. And, and how we view God, what I just talked about in that question, or more importantly, how God views us, his disposition towards us, has everything to do with where you go in, in your time of need. And, and as we continue in this series that we're in, uh, on Jesus, uh, just the character and person of Jesus, we're going to drill down into this idea of Jesus, our high, our high priest, our great high priest. And my prayer this morning for you, and honestly for me, and I've been getting to enjoy this a lot this week and, and see this a lot this week in my own life, is this going to produce in you, I hope it will produce in you an untouchable confidence to run to God at your first need. 
and not anywhere else. So I, I want to acknowledge right away with this title, Jesus the Great High Priest, I'm in danger of maybe losing some of you for lack of relevance, right? Uh, most of us don't have a lot of reference points for a priest, or especially a high priest. Uh, th- this passage and this idea is saying something about Jesus that's magnificent, but only really beautiful if we first understand the, the model that Hebrews and this Old Testament high priest is referencing back to. Like, y'all probably read that and were like, high priest Aaron, who's this Melchizedek guy? Like, what is going on here? I love Hebrews because I'm a rabbit trail guy, and Hebrews is full of rabbit trails. And I'm going to try not to chase too many uh, with you this morning. But, but I want to do a little historical digging in the Israelite high priest, because it's what this passage is using to help us learn something about who Jesus is. And so it'll enrich our view of Jesus to do a little bit of historical digging. So look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, which Jess wonderfully read. It says, For every high priest, talking about the Israel high priest, was chosen from among men and was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the Israel high priest was someone who was appointed by God to act as a necessary mediator to facilitate right relationship between God and his people. And so this, this priest and the system of this priest, it communicated a couple core truths, which I just want to focus on for a second. One, it communicated that there's a broken relationship with God. Uh, the Old Testament's really big, but the pattern is pretty simple. It's like God faithfully loves, pursues, covenants with his people, and, uh, and then they wander off, reject him, go after other loves, and then God has to reconcile them back over and over and over again. That's like the broken record of the Old Testament, really. Uh, or really humanity, but we'll stick with the Old Testament. And, and, and that broken relationship with God still exists with us today. Each of us has sin, which consistently sabotages our relationship with God. And um, I have uh, my favorite book on sin. I don't know what your favorite book on sin is. Um, is uh, this one called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. There aren't a lot of books on sin. That's why it was kind of funny. Got a couple chuckles. There are not many out there. Uh, but my favorite one is called, this is how it defines sin, is not the way it's supposed to be. Even if you don't acknowledge, if you're here and you're like, I don't acknowledge this sin thing, every person feels this reality at a gut level that, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be, Right? At a gut level, we feel cancer should not exist. At a gut level, we feel that children should not starve, that poverty should not exist, that anxiety, at a gut level, we feel anxiety and, and restlessness should not be constant in us. In my gut, I know that I should not wake up every morning to find fresh pigeon poo all over my parking pad. Like, it is just every morning, consistent grossness, night after night. There's something in us that intuitively knows that This is broken. There's something broken. And the second truth is that we need a mediator. This is what the high priest is meant to communicate, is that we need a mediator. So God kept faithfully pursuing people. They kept running. Israel kept running and cheating, right, on God. And so that relationship needed some mediation, some help, right? Israel needed someone to help reconcile them to God. And so the high priest was the method that was given to foster a right relationship with God. He would offer gifts and sacrifices as a provision of making things right, between God and the people he loved that were a little messy, a lot of messy. And so the the ministry of the high priest communicated this. There's brokenness with God, and we need someone, some mediator to step in and help us make things right. Now, the problem is that the high priest in that system was inadequate. Listen to chapter chapter 5, verse 3. 
because this high priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, uh, is he, um, for his own sins, just as he does for the other people. So focus on me. This is important. The high priest, he was broken himself. He had his own sin he had to take care of. He was trying to take care of the sin of the people, but also he had his own stuff. This is like when my kids go out to play in the mud uh, in the park, which happens uh, fairly often. They'll come inside, and they'll try to like clean up their mess while they're still muddy. And what happens? They just make a bigger mess, right? That's like, what, that's what we, that's like what's going on here. Like You're trying to clean it up, but you got your own mess you got to take care of, and it's just all over the place. Uh, secondly, the high priest didn't last. Even if this dude was great, uh, in a few, like, few decades, he gone. He's dying, right? And, and then the high priest's gifts, they were never finished. He had to keep coming back year after year after year after year to, to keep making things right. The hamster wheel just kept going. It was never finished. There was no rest, really. And friends, in our time of need, we, I want you to see, that, we, and I want you to see throughout this time, that we look to other people, other accomplishments, other experiences to comfort us uh, to make us right in a sense, but just like the high priest in Israel, they're, they're tainted themselves. They don't work. They won't come through. We, we look to human leaders, parents, spouses, friends for our ultimate comfort and satisfaction, and, and you know this. If, if you have, they, they will disappoint you. I, I've been disappointed, right? I've, I've looked in, I've put so much hope in a human leader, a human mentor uh, before, and, and have been disappointed. Uh, our solutions are, are temporary band-aids, really, right? Um, you might find some comfort in your bank account or some stress in your bank account, depending on what category you're in this morning. Uh, you might find some comfort in the next shopping experience, the next trip, uh, maybe in your fitness, but very soon, the numbers in your bank account are going to be gone. Uh, everything you own is going to fray and break and decay and rot. Every fiber I'm sorry to break this to you, some of you. Every fiber of muscle in your body is going to transform to flub and then to dust. It's not going to be that long. Right? I mean, our, our, our solutions are never finished. If you feel a lot of comfort from the affirmation of people, the thrill of success, the, the likes and the views, the next vacation you're going to get... Man, they're never really going to satisfy. You're just going to need more the next day. The hamster wheel is just going to keep turning and even speed up, right? You won't really have rest. You won't really be satisfied. The Israelites need a better high priest. We need a better high priest. And I want you to see just from these two points that we have Jesus, a great high priest, that is going to satisfy all the longings we have. So I want to look and adore and, and cling to a high priest who really just two points is sympathetic and sinless. Sympathetic and sinless. Let's look at verse uh, 15 of chapter 4. Man, when you, I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, when you attempt to, to grasp God's magnitude in a sense, his infinite power, glory, holiness, he's everywhere, but here he's all-knowing, um, his perfection. It really can be easy to think, like, how can God relate to me? How can I relate to him? How can the God who created, it's created time and stands outside of time, like, understand what it's like for me, a perpetual 15-minute late person? How can the God who owns everything relate to my financial stress and my student debt? How, how can the God who, who looks at the nations and said, I, I count the nations as dust in the scales compared to my magnitude and glory, like relate with like my everyday struggles, like my pigeon poo in the parking pad? 
It's a struggle. I'm not making it, yeah. Look at verse 15, though. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, for one, but one who in, in every respect has been tempted as we are. Okay, if you struggle with deg- double negatives, I sometimes do. Let me put this in a positive way. It's saying Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The infinite God of the universe became a finite man in Jesus Christ. And so what, what does that mean for us? It means he, experiences all, he experienced all the same weaknesses you have. All the limits, all the frailties, all the brokenness we experience in the world, Jesus is saying, I have two. The God of healing knows what it's like to be laid up sick in bed. I know half of y'all just had like hand, foot, and mouth, so like Jesus empathizes, right? It was going around. The, the triune God, the God of perfect community, has felt what it's like to be stabbed in the back by the betrayal of a friend. The God with, without limits now knew the limits of needing sleep and food and water. The God that literally owned everything knows and experienced deep poverty. God experienced weeping, heartache, the, the lump in your throat and the weightiness of your chest at the death of a loved one. And let me tell you why this matters. Think about a time when, when you were in pain and distress and hurt. And it, it can be really comforting if you tell a good friend, hey, I'm, I'm in pain and, and I need a friend, right? And, and they, they, it's a comfort because they, they see you, right? They know you're in pain and you've told them. And at least an intellectual level, they, they know what's going on with your life. They know your pain to a degree, right? But man, if, if you've experienced this, it is a whole different level. When you're in pain and you go and a friend comes to you or a family member comes to you who has experienced the same pain. Man, if, you, if you've lost a family member to cancer or you've experienced like spousal betrayal or you've gone through financial hardship, it, it is a completely new comfort when someone just comes alongside you in life and, and they just know, like not, at, not up here, but I mean they like know here. You don't even need to explain it to them. They don't just see your pain. They, they, they know your pain at an experiential level. They've gone through it. So they, they know how to comfort and connect with you like in, in a special way, right? And this passage is saying the God of the universe knows. He knows your pain and your limitations, your struggles at like an experiential level. I was thinking about this recently. Uh, Sale and I are going through um, the Narnia series. I know it's like a required, yeah, I don't know if it's like a requirement for your kids, but uh, we're trying to get through them, and we're, we're in the first one still, and there's this cool story. There's this kid, Diggory, and he's talking to Aslan, who's this Jesus figure, and Diggory's mom is uh, deathly ill, and Diggory is longing, he senses that Aslan can help, but he kind of doesn't want to bother him with the request, right? And this is what he says. This is uh, this conversation from... The first book, Magician's Nephew, this is Diggory seeking. He says, but please, please, won't you, he's talking to Aslan, won't you, can't you just give me something that will cure mother, cure my mom? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, wonder of wonders, 
Great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And Aslan said, my son, my son, I know grief is great. Jesus doesn't say, I know up here intellectually grief is great. He says it with tears in his eyes because he's experienced it before. I still remember when, uh, after Jen and I experienced one of our miscarriages, we had a close family friend just say this sentence to us that just was such a comfort. It was one sentence. And I still remember he looked at me and he said, Adam, God knows what it's like to lose a child. And man, what like comfort this gave my soul, thinking of the God of the universe that gave his son over to death. What gratitude and worship it stirred up in my heart amongst pain, right? So saying our great high priest sympathizes with our pain, even with tears. And it's, but it's not just our weaknesses. Look at this, that Jesus knows. But he also says, look at the rest of verse 15, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So Jesus doesn't empathize with your weakness. It actually says he also empathizes with your temptation. Okay, what does that mean? Jesus, God made man, literally has been tempted to sin in every way that you have. It's kind of crazy, right? Uh, in Matthew 4, we see Jesus tempted, right? Some examples. Jesus is tempted to satisfy his hunger uh, above holiness. He's tempted to put God to the test. He's tempted to take power for selfish gain. But look at this verse. It says, in every respect, Jesus has been tempted like you and I were. Another word to say that is there's no temptation to sin and wander from God that Jesus has not already worked through, walked through, that you've experienced. Jesus has been tempted to lie, to please people and escape persecution. As a child, Jesus was tempted to dishonor and not follow his parents. As someone who was sinned against, Jesus was tempted to be bitter and take revenge. As a man, Jesus was tempted to lust. As someone who destroyed people in debates, he destroyed people in debates. Jesus was tempted to, to gloat over his accusers, right? Jesus was tempted to be impatient and fed up with fickle people that just kept nagging him. A friend, every temptation that has been whispered in your ear was first whispered into Jesus's. And man, if, if you can see this, when you're struggling with temptation to sin, there, there's, there's no pain, there's no temptation in your life that could ever come to you in which the infinite, all-knowing God of the universe doesn't look at you with tears in your eye and say these words, I know I know at an experiential level. He doesn't just know intellectually. He knows, he feels it with you. He really knows your pain and trial because he's faced it before. Jesus is our great empathizer. And as our mediator, Jesus actually goes on your behalf before God, living a life beset, having lived a life beset with weakness and temptation. And as our representative, he really knows what it's like to live in a broken world. And friends, I, in times of pain and trial especially, I, I hope this comforts you. And I, I want to get to that towards the end. But it is an amazing comfort. But if Jesus is only a sympathizer, it's, it's not enough. Here's what I mean. If you're in despondency and pain, if you're like in the pit, if you're in the metaphorical mud pit of your life right now, man, it, it'll give you some comfort if I just like, 
hop in with you and get muddy myself, right? Like, man, yeah, I got a muddy buddy here with me in the pit, right? But it, it only goes so far if I can't help you get out. If I'm just stuck in it myself, I'm, I'm, there's some comfort, right? But we're still kind of doomed. We're just in the pit, the pit muddy to bet together. You're kind of left without hope. It's vital that our great high priest is not just sympathetic, but that he also, what the last part of verse 15 is saying, is that he is also sinless. And that's our second point. He's sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says, But one who in every respect has been tempted, as you and I were, every whisper of temptation that I've heard, Jesus has heard, and then it says this, yet without sin. Despite every whisper of temptation, Jesus never sinned. So this is a really important distinction that I don't think we often make. Temptation to sin and giving in to sin are not the same. Being tempted to tell a half-truth, to impress a friend, but, but, but not doing it is not sin. Being an engaged couple, being tempted to like cross physical boundaries that you've made, it is not sin. Like, I actually have told uh, engaged couples, like, I'd be a little worried if you didn't have a little bit of temptation, right? You guys should like each other a little bit. Being tempted to, to, to greed is, is not the same as giving in to sinful greed and actually taking action on that. And I think a lot of people wrongly feel shame just at the temptation to sin, the, the, the struggle to sin, when the invitation there is with sin whispers and knocks at the door, it's to resist and fight. But in the face of temptation, there literally is one person in all of history marked with these three words, that have a temptation, yet without sin. Every whisper of temptation to sin was like water filling up a reservoir behind a dam. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is that each one of us is a dam that cracked and failed as the water filled up. And all of... The, all of us were dams that broke, and brokenness and sin flooded and rushed into our lives. And it's saying Jesus is the one dam that never broke. As the temptations the world had to offer came against him, he stayed strong. Uh, you guys are getting a lot of C.S. Lewis this morning. Fifty years ago, C.S. Lewis uh, imagined someone objecting to this point. He said, he basically was saying, if, if Jesus never sinned, then, then he doesn't really know what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life. He lived out of touch uh, with how strong temptation can be. And, and here's his answer to what that objection is. I think it's really beautiful. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have to be like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ became Christ because he was the only man who ever yielded, never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So he's saying Jesus, the great high priest, he's the only person to walk the earth with a clean slate, a flawless resume amongst all the onslaughts of trial and temptation that the world had to offer us. So these two things, Jesus Christ is our perfect sympathizer and our perfect sin conqueror. So let me get to the, the third point here. Why is, why is this good news for us? What does this actually affect us in? How does having Jesus as a high priest who's sympathetic and sinless actually change us? And there's two 
responses here in the text that I want to look at. The first one is uh, confession, really a steady confession. Verse 14 of chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest in Jesus who's passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast to our confession. What does this mean? Hold fast our confession. Uh, simply put, it means we're going we're gonna to cling to the hope of the gospel in Jesus. Namely, that we're going to cling to the hope that God is for us. He'll not leave us. He's going to bring us to his final rest and final joy in him. I mean, I think this can sound easy, but it, it really isn't. In fact, without him, it's impossible. Without these truths we're talking about, I think it's impossible. There are constant temptations we've talked about outside or inside of us and trials outside of us that invite us to abandon this hope, this confession that he's telling us to cling to, like grab hold of. Inside, we struggle to see Christ as more satisfying as other things around us. We think other things look a lot more satisfying than him. And if I just had a taste of that, if I just had that in my life, then I would be satisfied. And more than that, I think we're, we're regularly confronted with inner doubts in our mind. It's a regular part of the Christian life, having doubts on whether this gospel thing is really legit sometimes. And then outside, we struggle to, to endure through ridicule of a culture that says a lot of things about Christianity, Right? Or blowback for following God's uh, word, God's way for your life. And we can be left wondering in our life, man, is this really worth it? I don't know if you guys have ever had that thought in your head. I'll be honest, I have. Is this, is this really worth it? Is God really for me? Is he really here? Is this Jesus thing really legit? And so we can falter and holding on to our hope, our confession. And in our faltering, the author of Hebrews is saying, look to the, the sympathetic, sinless high priest. I love what Hebrews 7 says later, a few chapters later. It says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, our great high priest. So Christian, right now, Jesus, your great high priest, is alive, sinless, sympathetic, reigning. And as your high priest, he is actively appealing to the Father on your behalf, saying, God, would you remember my perfect sacrifice for Adam? You can insert your name there. And treat him as you would treat me, a perfect son, a perfect beloved son. And he's saying he always lives to make intercession. This is an eternal reality. Our God, your high priest, will never tire, never weaken, never grow weary of interceding, of appealing to God on your behalf. I love this prayer uh, in a prayer book called Valley of Vision. It connects these two ideas of, of his high priestliness for us and our confession. He's, this prayer says, while Jesus is representing me in heaven... May I reflect him on earth. While he pleads my cause, may I show forth his praise. So Christian, the invitation here is to remember, your great high priest will not stop representing you in heaven. He's pleading your case right now as we speak. And so you can keep holding on to hope here, your confession here. We hold on to our confession 
And the second response, the last response from this text, verse 16, we have confidence. I want to spend a little more time here. We have confidence. Verse 16, let us then with confidence, this is in reaction to, in response to, verse 15, a great high priest who is sympathetic and sinless. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So because we have this type of high priest, the text says we come to the throne of God, what? Confident. How? Because in Jesus, like we just said, you have an advocate, a mediator, that can say, I have been through all the weakness, all the temptation that you have, yet I've done what you never could. I'm the dam that never broke. He came through the life of struggle and temptations, doing what no one has ever done, coming out with victory. And so Jesus being your, your great high priest means he's advocating, he's mediating on your behalf, which means he swapped places for you. I want you to picture this. Some of you, some of you have had nightmares about this. Picture you um, back in your school days, some of you are in school, you show up to take a test and you realize you didn't study. You guys ever had that nightmare before? You like show up and you didn't realize it was test. Maybe some of you lived that nightmare before. And you're reading the test and you're like, I don't know any of the answers. I'm just like, doing that thing where you randomly fill out the bubbles to try to guess, guess the, which ones to fill out, guess the, the pattern in the test, right? This doesn't work. Or you go the route where you just say all A's and think that, hey, maybe I can get at least 25%, you know? You're like going through that in your mind. Anyways, you're, you're convinced. You're like, I have thoroughly failed and flunked this test. There's like no way, no, no way that I actually passed this thing. Epically failed consequences are coming on your life from the failure. And man, then you look over to someone taking this test beside you. Look over to Jesus taking the same test, and he just looks calm, confident. You can tell he's acing this test. He took the same test that you're taking and aced it. Now, I want you to imagine time runs out. You're about to go turn in the test. Your head is hanging low. Man, you were certain I epically failed this thing. My, my life is going to veer off in a way towards failure because of, of this failure of my test. And suddenly Jesus just stops you. And he takes your failing test and he just scribbles his name on the top and he gives you his test and it has your name on the top. And then he turns, his, he turns your test in on his behalf with his name on the top. The failing test is his. Now you get the 100% with your name on the top. Now, all the consequences for the past test, the 100% test, are now on you, even though you deserve the consequences of your failing tests. And, and friends, I, I want you to see that that's what Christ did and is doing for us, that we actually go before God with Christ's reputation, Christ's purity, Christ's track record, His perfection, so that when you stand before God, you're treated as God treats His perfect Son who passed every temptation, passed every test with flying colors. And when we're failing and when we're struggling and when we're in need, like we talked about at the beginning, this is our comfort. This is our confidence to come to God and not anywhere else. Um, one example, I, I, you know, I talk with a lot of people that struggle with um, different kinds of sexual sin and pornography, and there's almost nothing like that type of sin that just causes such deep shame and hesitancy to come to God. The tendency is, let me just draw away from God. 
because you think that you're turning in your test, your failing test to God. But what this text means is that whenever you fall to sin, you can confidently run to God right away because you've already turned in. You're turning in Jesus' test. You're turning in his perfection. You're turning in his purity. What, what that means is you confidently come. When you come to him, you're wearing the reputation of the one person that lived a full, pure life, a full, a full sexually pure life. That is your reputation before God the Father. You could do this with, with any kind of failing in your life. If you failed as a child, man, you have the credit of the perfect son who over, always obeyed his, his, his father, his parents rightly. Maybe you failed as a friend. You have the reputation of the one who laid his life down for his friends, even when they didn't deserve it. If you failed as a spouse, if you've told a lie, if you struggle with partiality or racism, if you just stink at loving people, you just fill in the box that is the test that Jesus turned in on your behalf. You have his perfection attributed to your account. And so, Christian, whatever it is, you can come confidently to the throne of grace this morning. Not confident in yourself. Confident in the perfect priest that is advocating for you right now. Your confidence is on his performance, not yours. And I think so much we feel shame and despondency to come to God because we think it's on our performance. And it's not. It's on his so are you in a time of need, a place of need, this morning? Where are you going? The throne of grace? I love that it's the throne of grace. Where are you going to, like, the therapy of the world? I, I think about it for me, as I've been pre preparing for this sermon, it's so silly when, when I just go to other things in my time of need. Uh, what, is, what is a few dollars, some entertainment, some romantic fling, the, the newest gadget, what are those things in comparison to this high priest given to me. No one's ever going to come close. And if you aren't in Christ here, you need to know every one of us is going to come before the throne of God one day. For, for Christians, it says it's a throne of grace because we have Christ as our high priest. But, but if you're not in Christ, it's not a throne of grace. And my question for you is, who will you appoint to, to mediate? Remember, we need a mediator to, to mediate on your behalf. What payment are you going to give for the sin of your life? Your resume of good work, that you had really good intentions, even, you know, the good outweighed the bad, that your kids turned out great, that you had a few letters by your name. And I hope you've seen today that none of those things are going to be sufficient. They are, they're flawed, they're tarnished, they're, they're unending, they won't, uh, they're, they're, they're ending, they won't suffice. And I want you to, to see, non-Christian, that there, there is a great high priest appointed for you, waiting to advocate before you and God for all eternity to turn the, the throne of justice to a throne of grace. So would you follow Jesus? Not just pray a prayer, but give your life to follow him. I, I love what, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time in the later parts of chapter 5, but it says in chapter 5, verse 9, that Jesus now is the eternal source of salvation to all who obey him. Would you give your life to him? Your will, your dreams, all your heart. I want to wrap up our time just by Recalling that question I started with, how does God view you right now? And uh, I just want to just kind of end in a time of prayer and, and reflection, um, remembering what our great priest has secured for you, that because of Jesus, God sees and treats you as he does his one perfect son. And let's just pray together as we even just reflect on some of these truths. Because God sees us, and treats us as his one perfect son of us, God says. Of you, Christian, he says, I will never 
Let my love and my faithfulness depart from me. God says, I I rejoice every time you come to me. Every time you come to the throne of grace, I run to you, showering you with hugs and throwing a party. The parable of the prodigal son. Of you, Christian, he says, you are my beloved child. I'm well pleased. You can call me Abba Father. You, you You call the God of the universe your dad. What? He says of you, every hard thing in your life right now, I've placed there and I'm using it to bless you. I'm using it for your good. He's saying, I've prepared a place for you. I can't wait for you to come home. I can't wait for your homecoming. He's saying over you, Christian, I've purchased you. You are my saint. You're holy and righteous in me. And Father, we thank you for these and so many other truths that you speak over us as your kids in Christ. God, we we know we need help and we know we didn't deserve it. Thanks that we have help, even that we didn't deserve in our great high priest. And God, I, I confess and we confess the ways in which we go to other things, other places, other people in our need that we elevate above you, that we think we're going to find more comfort in, more hope in, more satisfaction in. God, would you show us how tarnished and fading and unsatisfactory those things are in light of our great high priest Jesus. Thank you that Jesus, uh, thanks that he knows, thanks that you know, thanks that you know. Um, God, there are many in pain around us and in this room, and thank you that you don't stand far off as a God that doesn't know, as a God that just says, suck it up, as a God that just says, you're just human, deal with it, but a God that says, I know, with tears in his eyes. God, I I pray that you would help us come to you as our first response, confidently, knowing we'll receive grace. God, I pray for those just hanging on by a thread with their, with their confession, with their hope in Christ, just really struggling with deep doubts, um, just wondering if it's worth it to follow you. God, I pray that they would look at the God that's interceding for them right now, that hasn't faltered, that hasn't wavered, and God, that that would, that would just cause them to, to cling to you and nothing else. God, I pray we'd be a people as we look to Christ that are just so enamored, so transformed. You say that when we look to you, we are transformed. When we look at you, we're being made to look more like you. Would we be a people so confident as we go to the throne of grace that we have so much grace to disperse for others? for our brothers and sisters, for our family, for those around us. God, we be dispensers of grace because we have received so much grace in, in this high priest. So guys, we come and turn to the table. We look now at our high priest who uh, we can look to and say, it is finished. Your work is done. Thank you for the realities and this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.